Sutra 12. Riding upon wind horse is an experience of higher samadhi. What was that? I think my mind just got zapped. Some call it samadhi. Others call it the mystic path, said Mr. Kismet. Extraordinary. So that's my path? Not quite, said Forgiveness. Well, can you tell me more about this mystic path? Thus I have heard that the Tibetans are said to have stages of the mystic path in the following way. First, they read a large number of books on various religions and philosophies, to listen to many learned doctors professing different doctrines, to experiment oneself with a number of methods, two, to choose a doctrine among the many one has studied, three, to remain in a lowly condition, humble in one's demeanor, not seeking to be conspicuous or important in the eyes of the world, but behind apparent insignificance, you are free to let the mind soar like an eagle above the worldly matters. 4. To be indifferent to all, behaving like the dog or the pig that eats whatever chance brings them, then not making any choice among the things which one meets, abstaining from any effort to acquire or avoid anything, accepting with an equal indifference whatever comes, riches or poverty, praise or contempt, giving up the distinction between virtue and vice, honorable and shame, good and evil, being neither afflicted nor representing whatever one may have done, and, on the other hand, never being elated nor proud on account of what one has accomplished. 5. To consider with perfect equanimity and detachment the conflicting opinions and the various manifestations of the activity of beings. To understand that such is the nature of things, that inevitable mode of action of each entity, and to remain always serene. To look at the world as a man standing on the highest mountain of the country looks at the valleys and the lesser summits spread out below him. 6. It is said that the sixth stage cannot be described in words. It corresponds to the realization of the inexpressible reality, said Forgiveness. Oh, and let me tell him about the two exercises that are especially prescribed by the adepts of the mystic path. The first consists in observing with great attention the workings of the mind without attempting to stop it. Seated in a quiet place, the disciple refrains as much as he or she can from consciously pointing his or her thoughts in a definite direction. He or she marks the spontaneous arising of ideas, memories, desires, etc., and considers how superseded by new ones they sink into the dark recesses of the mind. He or she also watches the subjective image which, apparently unconnected with any thoughts or sensations, appears while the eyes are closed. During that exercise, he or she avoids making reflections about the spectacle which he or she beholds, looking passively at the continual flowing stream of thoughts and mental images that whirl, jostle, bite, and pass away. It is said that the disciple is about to gather the fruit of this practice 
when he or she loosens the firm footing they have kept. Till then, they're in the quality of spectator. They must understand that they are an actor on a tumultuous stage. The present introspection in all acts and thoughts, and the very sum of them, all which they can call the self, are but passing bubbles in a whirlpool made of an infinity quality of bubbles which congregate for a moment, separate, burst, and form again, following a giddy rhythm. The second exercise is intended to stop the roaming of the mind in order that one may concentrate it on a single object. Training which tends to develop a perfect concentration of mind is generally deemed necessary for all students without distinction. As to observing the mind's activity, it is only recommended to the most intellectual disciples. Training the mind to one-pointedness is practiced in meditation, or one can gaze at water, fire, stone, or earth. The gaze continues until it is seen as clearly when the eyes are shut as when they are open and actually looking at it. The process does not aim at producing a hypnotic state, but rather when the subjective images has become as vivid as the objective indicates that one-pointedness has been reached," said Mr. Kismet. But what does all this mean? Life and death are but a dream. Gods, demons, and the whole universe are but a mirage that exists within the mind, springs from it, and sinks into it. Mystic masters affirm that by the means of such concentration of the mind, waves of energy are products which can be ridden or used in different ways. These are currents or threads of life force," said Mr. Kismet. I really like the sound of the mystic path. Well, it's not your path, said Forgiveness. Then which path is mine? No path is yours, but our path arises when things fall apart. My friends, we are called for the path of the heart, said Forgiveness. At that moment, a certain paranoia began to arise. Holy shit, you guys! I think I died. It hit me at once, and I think I stumbled or fell. I was too lethargic to make a big deal, so I didn't cry or yell. I slouched down, afraid to think of myself as gone. Oh, how could it happen like this? It's all gone wrong. No, it's right. The Tibetan Book of the Dead says you'll be back in less than 49 days. You'll find yourself a new life. I promise the soul knows the way," said Mr. Kismet. Forgiveness? I don't think the path of the heart is for me. Though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am a sounding brass, or a tinkling thimble. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries of knowledge, and though I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The path of love, the path of the heart, the path of emotion, relationship, dualism, taking you to the essence of love, taking you from loving to being love, this is the path of the heart," said Forgiveness. Can you just tell me what's going on? Thus I have heard, in Tibet, one meets people who have been in a state of lethargy and are able to describe the various places in which they have traveled. 
Be it pilgrims or exploration, a journey abroad has taken place. These curious travelers are called the Logs, which means one who has returned from the beyond. Though the Logs vary in their descriptions of places and events, they usually agree in depicting the feelings of the pseudo-dead as definitely pleasant, said forgiveness. You know, I once met a woman who remained inanimate for a week. She said she had been pleasantly astonished by the lightness and agility of her new body and the extraordinary speed of its movements. She had only to wish herself in certain places to be there immediately. She could cross rivers, walk upon water, or pass through walls. There was only one thing she found impossible, to cut an almost impalpable cord that attached her ethereal being to the material body, which she could see perfectly well, and sometimes it hampered her movements. She would get caught up in it, said Mr. Kismet. The D-Log is not really a dead person, so that nothing can prove that the sensations of experiences in any lethargy are the same as those felt by death. Your soul feels tired because you realize you've got quite the way to go. You'd rather be a corpse sometimes, just lying in bed, but you have a long road to run and several mountains to pass and cross, said forgiveness. He was right, and I was so tired I went to the cafe aboard the wonder train. I spoke with the barista, who was a meditation mother, and I explained how I thought I had lost my mind. Then she told me that the book called the Yoga Sutras could get me out of any bind. Well, what if the world's gone crazy? Then what do we do? The meditation mama paused and looked into my eyes. Maybe the world needs to start by turning our phones off for 24 hours together. Wouldn't that be a real adventure to go through? Said the meditation mama. I met another girl aboard the wonder train, and soon I realized that for the first time, I met someone whose thoughts on death were exactly like mine. Now it takes a lot of suffering to make someone wish for death. Can you imagine the toll it takes for a living person to lose everything, but still be living, while not having anything left? What then? I suppose that's when people start praying for death. What if death is freedom? What if it's the entry into heaven and peace? Could death be a blessing, by ending all of our suffering and disease? What if death was like a big hug, a sudden surprise welcoming our soul back home? The light turns on, and there we wake up from the unknown into the known. The opening into absorption can be gentle, or it can be fierce like a storm. And the more you let go and open into it, the more seamless you become absorbed. In Samadhi we become something like a sponge, where sensitivity heightens beyond measure. Here we feel all the world's joys and pains. We reap the rewards and pitfalls of both hell's intensity and heaven's treasures. The opening into absorption is not for the individual, but rather it opens up for the loss of oneself. This disillusion releases the ego, where the person merges to unite with the capital self. This is when we remember our wholeness, where we are one, and no one else something like a sponge. The feeling of death began to collapse. It took over me, seeping into every pore. Now the contemplative awareness regained control over my reality. I could see that the I, which had become the story of me, 
was all for nothing, because technically this was the story of we. The idea of me I got caught up in became a profound process of releasing and letting go. In this moment, we were one with eternity, a sense of altruism and wisdom interwoven into the heart of our soul. All that was impure began to transform into purity, and so the movie of me and my individuality shifted and was reshaped into the movie of we. As the old aspects of me died, there came a sudden collapse. Lost somewhere in the ocean of the mind, my memory would often lose track. Every death is forceful, but it's the only way to set our spirit free. Now new pathways relinked this body and mind with the true essence of divinity, and this was the truth of religion and spirituality. Life is a great journey, and our body departs as death forces us to fall apart. But something is self-existing, and as I died, I recognized that the seer had always continued before you or I had ever came to start. All things seem to dissolve and change with time, even riddles and rhymes. Someday the impressions of the mind would wash away, and we'd all go back into the ocean of awareness to be united with the tides. That night as the train went off into the darkness, I woke up when the sun summoned a beacon in the form of a ray. No matter what you make of dying, the spiritual soul will always continue forth on its way. Well, what are you going to do? There is no passion to be found in playing it small, said Mr. Kismet. What about the heart's call, said Forgiveness. A call? Mm-hmm. You can't run from it. You can't deny it, and you can't pass it off. It's our call. God knew what God was doing. God knew who he was calling. So God expertly and intricately detailed every aspect of our life, our being, our persona, our psyche, everything about us, from the color of our eyes, to the strands of our hair, to the way we laugh, to the fingerprints on our thumbs. Everything is connected to the heart's calling, and until we walk into our fullness of the heart's calling, then we will not stop walking," said Forgiveness. Forward! yelled Mr. Kismet. There I'd remember how little the body is, and how big and vast the land was. I bowed to the earth, for she was the mother of human man. It was through her grace that we grow and exist, and by her magic the soul goes beyond life and death. Sitting in contemplation, I began to wonder where we were meant to go. And as I strived to become one-pointed, I realized Windhorse was the only one who would know. Even though the train of wonder was like a hidden pathway, it occurred to me that I'd need to temporarily step off from the train. This higher knowing came from my intuition, and it manifested in ways that words could not quite explain. This inner knowing was a realization that the train would keep me wondering with the spinning mind. This train is a great place for inner discovery and healing, but I heard hooves running and I remembered there was a white horse we needed to get aligned. I slipped away from the train in the middle of the night without ever telling anyone I left. Then I tucked the cats in for bed and departed just like any other death. My old self was dying and sooner or later I had to let go. 
time to enter into new life and walk forward into the unknown. That night I went off in search of Windhorse's tracks. Her gallop told me she was nearby, but every time I thought I got close, I'd find that she had a way of slipping up and away into the sky. She was interwoven within nature, a tight union that could last, an inseparable bond that was bound to a life I had lived from a time in the past. Now this journey was a spiritual process, which is when one agrees to walk upon the way. I often felt lost while I searched for her, but I never gave up on any of the long days. When I got trapped in the story of me, I tried to remember this was the story of we. Then I'd gaze up at the stars in an effort to be one-pointed and wonder about what the future might foresee. There I'd picture everyone together, all the stars, planets, and universe in harmony rotating around a sun. As my awareness grew, I looked up and saw how the world was really run. We were all those light bearers. We are all the candles and stars that melt before death. We are the removers of darkness, as it is a star's grace that offers light, relief, and rest. And if you find yourself in that samadhi, that higher state of absorption, material things may appear to collapse as signs of our soul's connection with spiritual fortune. That's right, whispered Mr. Kismet. It's as if your soul is upon a great ride, far out. Like maybe you yourself jumped upon an ancient train after your previous life died. Now as you travel from here to there, you may wonder about this train. Your mind remembers how you used to live in a body, but suddenly reality feels like a dreamy game. It takes a journey to wake up and realize that you yourself are involved. That's the middle of the riddle you're in right now, and so it takes great action for such a puzzle to be solved. We must remember that the Divine Feminine works in a non-linear fashion, so while many are looking for the checklist to find completion, the pursuit of anywhere beyond the exact moment isn't going to serve them. In the moment there is great genius at work, which we couldn't quite integrate all at once. Every so often you touch it, and in the moment you discover how existence is pure love. We must follow that mysterious and sometimes harmonious trail, which lures us deeper into the unknown, fortifying our trust in that great source which allows us to grow. And what if you touch truth? How could you explain it to the rest? The magic of the moment does not require any human words or breath. And if you try to describe it, the world could say you're not well. They might toss you in a psych ward and sentence you as mentally ill. You may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated. In fact, it may be necessary to encounter these defeats so that you can know who you are and still rise to come out of it. Release those old ways break free from constricting patterns. Time to map new neural pathways and create a reality of fresh layers. When we touch the spiritual place of Samadhi, we sink into a sense of peaceful grace, like a removal of darkness, or like how a chalkboard might get erased. We're removing past impressions, sink into the Samadhi state. Here you discover your true calling. This is the space you discover your real fate, said Mr. Kismet. 
And so we've come from those stars? But how did we agree we'd come back? Surely we did it for a good reason. We did it on the Earth's behalf. By now you're aware the two sides have come to attack. It's been coming for years, and all that old karma is due to come back, said Forgiveness. Like any great teacher, the cats offered diverse teachings in unique settings. So I'd adapt the Dharma to words and notes, so I had the capabilities to inform anyone listening. These precious cats had a particular genius in presenting the Dharma to Western audiences, and the cats did so at a time when these teachings were new and unfamiliar to most in the West. As such, these teachings displayed the far-reaching goodness that can be cultivated in the world when compassion and devotion come together. Where do you get your teachings? Both Mr. Kismet and Forgiveness smiled. Then the wind swept by, but otherwise it was silent for a long while. Well, where? Thin air, said Mr. Kismet. Up there? Everywhere, said Forgiveness. So how should one listen and receive it? Summon it, said Forgiveness. Of course, I paused. And how do you do that? I whispered to Mr. Kismet. You can call it forth. Simply say, Om Tat Tat Ta, said Mr. Kismet. Om Tat Tat Ta? Or you could say, Om Lung Ta, said Forgiveness. Lung Ta? Lung Ta is Wind Horse, and she holds the flaming scrolls upon her back, said Forgiveness. Ah, so. And there I found serene stillness with the black cats. Night after night, I would write as we sat. I'd observe how the wind had no body, and how it had no pride. But yet it could travel across the sea, and it could float across the sky. All pervasive, it spread its teachings everywhere it went. It passed between the earth and stars, and so I knew it was heaven sent. The wind was a rare teacher. One seldom has the opportunity to meet such a great master. And after a long time and much patience, I began to get wind that these ancient teachings were available. The teachings should be for the great benefit of upholding the wind's lineage, for both older students and younger students on the path. Upon a night when the cats and I were alone, after I sat in stillness with the wind for quite some time, I rose and spoke to the wind, Om Ta-Ta-Ta. And there, I heard a wind horse run. At that moment, I took note of what I was seated upon. My soul sat upon a white horse, and the wind was our song. This horse was great. It was the spiritual essence that had gone beyond the living land. It arrived to purify the impure mind and consciousness, and so her name was God-given. She was fully aware of me, for I was upon her back, riding on God-given. I had no reason to fear her, but I'd lost sight of both the earth and the cats. She carried me far and wide. Faster and faster we ran. The wind horse was divine in nature, and she was connected to God's plan. I noticed there were flaming scrolls upon her saddle, blooming out from a lotus balanced upright. And everywhere the horse galloped, the light of her precious jewel burned ever bright. The horse rarely spoke with words, but rather she taught me with the glance of an eye, 
heralding in the new age, and so I learned that the old ways were coming to die. I reached for the scrolls, but they were shielded by fire. I would wait to be instructed in case Windhorse needed a transcriber. Terma, treasure, said Windhorse. In order to receive wisdom, one must simply go forth into union with the Tao. Once you become clear, you'll hear Windhorse so loud in ways that others are not allowed. There are messages in thin air. This is a God-given breath. Comfort beyond the material world. Eternal rest beyond death. Not just life, but a supreme rest. What if the fun part of existence does indeed come after death? Easy now, Longta. I began to sink my awareness into the world's karma. Going oh so slow, we began to examine where people suffered and how mankind had been harming them. I'd get easily distracted, but I always knew when Windhorse was trying to speak. She'd shout out with the wind, rain, and storms, stampeding so loud until everyone in the city could not sleep. Gentle Lungta, I began to absorb energy like a sponge, like a mist in a cloud or a drip of water poured into an oceanic plunge. I learned much about Windhorse's past, and I could see into her old lives. There she rode and showed me visions of past lives where she had died. In Windhorse's youth, she traveled extensively, wandering from place to pilgrim place to receive teachings, meet teachers, and engage in meditation with retreat. Thus I have heard, Windhorse's main teacher, a guru or a mover of darkness, was quite an extraordinarily and unconventional master. Before the teacher's crazy wisdom manifested, he was a very pure monk. Later in his life, when he almost died, he went into what can only be described as a sort of coma. When he awoke from the coma, he appeared as a completely different person and displayed many ways of interacting with people like the great powers of the past, which is known as crazy wisdom. This is the profound treasury of the ocean of Dharma, which is an extraordinarily collection of common and uncommon teachings. As taught, the fully enlightened state is the true nature of the universe. The path is to realize that universal nature, regardless of one's individual abilities or cultural traditions. Fortunate beings who will come in the future, please hold these teachings with devotion as you would to the enlightened master in person, for I believe these are the absolute essence of the teachings. Above all, hearing this now, I would like to thank Windhorse's root teacher, the Vidyahara, who set a personal example of wisdom, kindness, humor, discipline, and daring qualities that are so lacking in this troubled world. May the rays of Windhorse's compassion shine forth for generations to come. May her teachings be heard, put into practice, and realized, and may doing so awaken us to our true nature. May we emulate dedication to others, remembering Windhorse's words, which are, Never give up. May the power of the Dharma transform war into peace, confusion into wisdom, complacency into engagement, and hate into love for the benefit of all beings. In hearing this, it is good to keep in mind the nature of these words in the context which they were presented. 
It is an oral tradition, and it is rooted in the direct transmission of the teachings from teacher to student. That is how Windhorse found it and passed it to me. The early sutras, or discourses, maintain the quality and always mention the place, time, setting, and who was present. While the place is here, the time is now, and we are present. In keeping with the oral tradition, sutras typically begin with the phrase, Thus I have heard. Thus I have heard, Windhorse was a Vidyahara, or a knowledge holder. Born in eastern Tibet, Windhorse's emphasis was on meditative training and direct personal experience. After Windhorse took on the duties and responsibilities expected of a lineage holder, there was an invasion and Windhorse left all she had and became a refugee. She ran across the world, over the ocean, to arrive here in America and spread the teachings through the rest of the world. Windhorse then explained, You could become a very powerful, important instrument in propagating the true path. We are building this body of teachings so that everything does not become bottlenecked by my own particular existence alone. It could go beyond just me. You could continue to expand the vision after my death. What happens in the future completely depends on your intelligence and discipline and effort, so you better take more responsibility. All of this is going to be handed over to you anyway, sooner or later, whether you would like to take it or not. You could reject it or throw it in the dust, but it is up to you to take responsibility for the presentation of the way. You need to help future students, not only in this country, but in the rest of the world. By now, the people have forgotten the way, so a fresh generation of practitioners will arise. Our vision is very extensive and large, and as far as the work that needs to be done, it is also highly demanding. Hopefully you have actually managed to understand something. If you haven't understood, we will have to put you through another examination process, again and again and again. I am not willing to give up on you. People may try to make sure that they are given up, but that won't be the case as far as I'm concerned," said Windhorse. The compassionate heart of my teacher, the Vidyahara, shines through in this, her articulation of the path. She never lost sight of the fact that every aspect of the teachings is about nothing else than the freedom of awakening, and her greatest gift is that she never lets any one of us lose sight of that either. A bolt of lightning shot through the sky and struck the land when rain began to cry. She was one of the most remarkable and brilliant teachers of modern times. In your training, you will pass the Great Plains, then start in a narrow gorge, and finally you climb up a very steep hill, a mountain range, which is the preparation to understand and experience the Vajrayana. In order to do that, you have to put a lot of effort and energy into your practice. If students are not ready, if they have not put any effort into their practice, the effort of the teacher becomes futile. It's like talking to a brick wall, without eyes, without ears or expressions. The teacher is then talking to pure confusion alone, said Windhorse. As I rode upon Windhorse, I noticed she would not look back. Her gaze was forward where I could see the invasion that haunted her past where the humans had once attacked. 
Briefly, there are three yanas. The Hinayana begins with a meditation intensive lasting one to two weeks, followed by a study period focusing on the Hinayana. This is then followed by another meditation intensive in the Mahayana period. Finally, there would be a third practice intensive followed by the Vajrayana period. The Hinayana refers to individual development and the path of the Arhat, or worthy one seeking individual liberation. The Mahayana refers to the joining of wisdom and compassionate action and the path of the Bodhisattva, or those who awaken to help liberate all beings. And the Vajrayana refers to the fearless engagement and spiritual courage of the path of the Siddha, or holder of spiritual power. The three yana approach presents a map of the path based on a student's natural developmental progression. The path begins with Hinayana. The term Hinayana means smaller vehicle, not because it is simple-minded or lacking in vision, but because it is a pragmatic and deep-rooted approach. The Hinayana introduces core teachings on the nature of mind, the practice of meditation, the reality of suffering, and the possibility of liberation. It examines the nature of suffering, impermanence and egoless, with an emphasis on personal development through meditative discipline and study. The formal entry into Hinayana and the Buddhist path altogether is the refuge vow, in which a student goes for refuge to the Buddha or the teacher, the Dharma or the teachings, and the Sangha or the community. The Hinayana path is based on training in mindfulness and awareness, cultivating virtue, and cutting grasping. Those who accomplish this are called arhats, worthy ones who have completely severed their ties to this world of confusion and suffering or samsara and attained peace. The Mahayana, or Great Vehicle, rests on the foundation established by the Hinayana. The meditative training and ethical insight of the Hinayana is essential for the aspiring Mahayana practitioner, and the value placed on mindfulness and awareness, gentleness and simplicity continues. At this point, having trained and seen the benefits of looking within, the practitioner begins to shift their focus outward to the broader world. Formal entry into the Mahayana occurs with taking the Bodhisattva vow. Mahayana practitioners dedicate themselves to the service of sentient beings, aspiring to save them from the sorrow and confusion, and vowing to bring them to perfect liberation. This yana emphasizes the cultivation of wisdom through the view and experience of emptiness, or shunyata, in which all phenomena are seen to be unbounded, completely open, ungraspable, and profound. From the ground of shunyata, compassionate activity is said to arise naturally and spontaneously. In addition to mindfulness and awareness, the Mahayana practitioners practice lojan, or mind training, based on the cultivation of the transcendent virtues, generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation, and knowledge. As a component of lojan, tonglin, or sending and taking is practiced in order to increase Maitri, or loving-kindness. To those who accomplish the Mahayana, who join emptiness and compassion, or wisdom and skillful means, are called bodhisattvas, or awakened beings. Because of the courageous nature of such heroes and heroines, 
They are also referred to as Bodhisattva Protectors or Bodhisattva Angels. The Vajrayana or Diamond Vehicle also is referred to as Tantra, which draws upon and extends the teachings of the Hinayana and Mahayana. The Tantric path requires complete engagement and fierce dedication. It is said to be the more rapid path, but it is also more dangerous. There is a quality of directness, abruptness, and wholeheartedness. Tantrikas, or Vajrayana practitioners, recognize that the most challenging aspects of life, the energies and play of confused emotions and frightening obstacles, can be worked with as gateways to freedom and realization. Accomplished practitioners of Vajrayana are called Siddhas, which means those who have power. What do you mean, those who have power? We all have great power, but it requires all three together. Do not bypass one, but rather the yanas are interwoven into union. Three into one, one continuous journey, but I, wind horse, must be ridden by you since it is a horse who leads the spiritual army, said Wind Horse. But how can Wind Horse be ridden? It is the way of increasing one's personal power or life energy by riding upon me. You are riding on the energy of your soul. When we ride upon our spiritual energy, we turn our obstacles into good fortune. The life force called Wind Horse is unlimited energy of basic goodness, which is the soul's true nature and this is known as inherent wakefulness. To even find Wind Horse, we must first realize that at the heart of all souls, everyone has potential to wake up and arise out of the confused world. Every day we need to contemplate our own inherent wakefulness. Then we'll have confidence to raise our Wind Horse and ride it through life with joy and delight. This is how we become the kings and queens of our lives, said Wind Horse and I feel so lucky to have found you. It was not luck, but rather you connected through Wind Horse, through stillness, meditation, and yoga practice. The beauty of meditation is that it gives us direct experience that the Buddha discovered, that suffering arises from the basic misunderstanding that the self is a solid entity. This prepares us for the real possibility of encountering our own basic goodness which allows us to raise wind horse. Look at life and we will quickly find that it is full of ups and downs. There is a waxing and waning in our ordinary lives. Here we learn that none of it is solid. Because being caught up in a difficult situation can feel very solid, meditation practice is the ideal preparation for hard times, said wind horse. Then what is the key that you have led me to? It all comes back to knowing basic goodness, which is the mind of enlightenment. It's when we are no longer burdened by the concept of me. Living without the concept of me, free space in our hearts, from which we can naturally generate love and compassion for others. The saying goes, if you want to be miserable, think only about yourself. If you want to be happy, think of others. We try so hard to be happy, we just go about it the wrong way. The more we think of ourselves, the more pain we feel and the more unhappy we become. When we begin to think about others, there's delight, there's openness, and lo and behold, we have peace of mind. This is a courageous perspective. It means that from now on, until we attain enlightenment, 
we can act in service of the happiness of others. When we arise in the morning, let us get up and think, what a wonderful day. I have this whole day to dedicate myself to serving all beings. By having this intention of the Bodhisattva protector, we broaden our view and soften our future. If life feels impossible and overwhelming, as if we're going to be crushed under the vastness of such an approach, we can remember that this mind of enlightenment is bigger than the me. We do this by rousing the energy of wind horse. She said, Om Langta. Go forth and join intellectual study with meditative training and practice. It occurs naturally when the wind horse, the community, and the path come together in union. The Hinayana can be looked at in terms of discipline, meditation, knowledge, samadhi, and prajna. Discipline is of prime importance for the path and is a do-it-yourself project. Having discipline in meditation practice in daily life occurs through taming the mind and living a dharmic lifestyle. You must be committed to the path, said Windhorse. And how should one walk upon the path? No need to walk, sit and meditate, then it comes to you. The calming and settling of the mind is in the shamatha practice, where we work with posture, breathing, and thought patterns. The technique of labeling thoughts is introduced, as is the technique of touch and go. Using this in meditation and applying it to daily life allows us to be present where awareness begins to become mindful or open to the surrounding environment. Practicing shamatha will naturally and effortlessly lead to the expansive awareness of vipassana. Vipassana is known as insight or clear seeing. It has a quality of inquisitiveness and positive doubt. It is the insight that leads to the realization of egolessness and glimpses of emptiness. The emptiness with vipassana here is as a direct meditative experience of panoramic awareness. This leads to a heightened appreciation of the world and a quality of relaxed yet meticulous attention, said Windhorse. So, there is power in meditation? Nay, not quite power, but freedom to let go. And those who have power, the siddhas, have gone through meditation into samadhi. They did not receive power for the I, but they received it for us, said Windhorse. Two ways Windhorse spoke of meditation was in terms of mindfulness, or calming and settling of the mind, and the ability to hold the mind steady or to concentrate. We use the term awareness to refer to the way that the mind naturally expands out once it is settled and develops spaciousness and clarity. As I began to let go, to embrace this open land, I surrendered because I'd come to realize the machine I'd once been riding was an unconscious pattern created by human man. Work, eat, and sleep, then repeat. Do this until you retire, and then go forth and die. But I couldn't break free from this until I went into contemplation to ask, but why? There in stillness and meditation, I touched emptiness, and I was able to release the breath along with the doubts. I danced in the wind with wild horses made of spirit, got wisdom from feathers, and was guided by cards where I determined the best route. And with that breath out, I knew I had to fill up, and so I reached into the ocean of Dharma to fill up my cup, a chalice that held purity, 
a vessel that carried my soul. I reached the cup into the ocean of Dharma, and there I realized my nature was already whole. Well, I took a sip, and I touched that previous moment with time. The scrolls talk about the jewel of life, which is here and now, and so whenever I rode upon Windhorse, my thoughts began to rhyme.